Blog Talk Radio. Favorite. 
The Dotson Audiobook Program has new releases and audiobooks for every genre. All audiobooks are free to interested reviewers. Now, ladies and gentlemen, listen to that sentence very carefully. The audiobooks are free if you agree to review it when you're finished. You simply listen and share your thoughts. Go to audiobookwormspromotions.com forward slash adopt an audiobook. Also, J. Traveler Pelton has a new book out. It's called The Infant Conspiracy. It is available on Amazon both in paperback and ebook. And it starts a few years after rebooting the Oberlin's left off. Noel and Violet Oberlin spent their adult careers working special assignments for the U.S. government, which was a family tradition of service. But after 40 years of espionage, all they wanted was a peaceful retirement in the country. And just as it seemed that dream might happen, an unplanned series of events forced their overachieving adult children to live with the folks. All four of them driven out of their homes by different aspects of the government, which had gone quite insane. Kai, a genetist, Bazania, his wife, Gabriel, a bomb expert, turn nurse with her little grandson, Gabe, Jasmine, a forensic psychiatrist married to Scott, a CPA, move home. They join their little siblings, Micah, an autistic savant, and Serena, an artist, and uncovering a secretive group of people led by the ice lady, whose main goal appears to be to take the Earth's population down from 7 billion to 500 million within the next 10 years. Having infiltrated the governments of most developed countries and released an airborne anti-fertility virus, the Brotherhood succeeded in forcing a zero fertility rate. In the meantime, the economy of the U.S. all citizens who have debt into slavery within a system so harsh that civil disorder breaks out. Serenity Retreat Center is forced to become a slave labor camp, and the family is once again compelled into special service to save the center, their tribe, the United States, and humanity from extinction. And if you thought retirement was simply about money, this book will change your mind. Now, for you, those of you who read Diane Moat and her Sam Holden series, she has the third in the Sam Holden series out. Sam Holden, our favorite vigilante, has returned. The third book in the series has just been released, and Dog Bones, Sam's quest to avenge abused animals is threatened when the FBI comes after her on one side and the commissioner wants her dead on the other side. Will Sam's double life be exposed? Will she be able to protect the animals, her friends, and herself? Check out Dog Bones by Diane Moat everywhere ebooks are sold. And if you haven't yet started the series, ladies and gentlemen, you can go on Amazon and start with Dog Gone. Right now it is free. That's Dog Gone and Dog Bones by Diane Moat on Amazon. Tonight I want to welcome a guest who has been with me before, and, and I thought hours flew by. When I talk to this gentleman, it seems like we just get started and we have to say goodbye. Author David Hoof joins us tonight, and he is a critically acclaimed international best-selling fiction author and a writing teacher who lives in D.C., he has some books out there that will curl your toes. Um, he's got a new one out called Babes and Bastards, which we will get to. But when I was doing my deep dive on David tonight, I found out a little something about him, which I found quite amazing. So without further ado, David, welcome back to the show. I am so glad you're here. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Yvonne. I wanted to thank you for thanking me. I also have been following you, and I am going to offer an apology for those of you, uh, th th those who have not called in on time. Uh, I have uh, heard uh, several times where you were uh, stood up by your guests, and in the way I was brought up, that is terribly bad form. And uh, I know it's awkward for you to be in that situation. I simply wanted to come to the rescue and let you know that there are folks who would be glad to talk to you and would be rather reliable about it. My first reaction was, you're better informed, Yvonne, because if this happens once from a guest, you ought to justifiably be quite reluctant to give them a second chance at it. Absolutely. In fact, 
unless it's someone that I know and someone that this is totally out of character for them, they don't get a second chance because if you've been on the show enough, you've seen this show take off for the last two years and you know what it takes to put this show together and how far in advance I book guests. I'm booked through the end of January going into February now. People wait a long time to get on this show, and when somebody does that, you're right. It's rude. It's crude. It's sociably unacceptable, and they do not get a second chance. Uh, I would say also um, among the the regrets that I always have is that someone um, new and fresh and energetic and uh, quite exciting might have had that spot, and that's that's a shame. Uh, it is. It, it is. So it I is wanted a shame. to. Yeah, I, w- I wanted to spare you that and say, uh, here I am as promised, and I will let you lead and see what I can provide according to your curiosity. Well, the the thing that that caught my eye tonight when I was going back over some notes I had on you, ladies and gentlemen, David teaches creative writing. Now, if if I lived in D.C. I would stand in line to take his class. The man is not only brilliant, but he is a master with words. And there's very few things I would stand in line for. I don't stand in line for concerts. I I refuse to stand in line at the grocery store. That's why I have my groceries delivered. I refuse to wait in doctor's offices for more than 25 minutes. I refuse to... um, do anything that causes me to waste my time because to me time is precious for David I would wait in line because this man could teach me so much more than I already know and when I was doing my my looking over my notes he has some former students who now have become published authors and David with your permission I would just like to to call out their names because I am so envious of them. Well, certainly. Uh, that's, quite, that's quite all right with me. Hopefully, I don't massacre their names. Now, some of his past students that are published authors, Peter Abresh, yes. Sheila Kleinman, yep. Bob Cohe, mm-hmm. Kehoe, right. Kehoe, Doug right. Greer, yep. Julia Rodriguez. Uh, Rodriguez, right. Rodriguez, Sean McLaney, McLaney, right, and G.M. Mallet, who won an Agatha Award. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that says so much for David to have all of those past students now becoming published authors. Congratulations, my friend. Well, thank you very much, uh, Evan. Uh, when you you skipped over Scott, uh, Sean McElhenney, Sean and I are actually involved in a project now. He is a professional screenwriter uh, in Hollywood. We have joined on a project, and uh, we are collaborating on that to the mutual enrichment. Uh, of each of us. So this is not just uh, someone who's come through, but this is someone who who is a friend now and a co-worker and a, a glorious person to be with because a big advan- one of the huge advantages of working with someone uh, whom you've taught is that he's aware of things. I don't have to teach him as we go through this. He's a quite a quick study and will pick up on a point without my having to belabor it. it, It's been a transforming experience, I think, for both of us. He's got an agent now, and he's got interest in in the project, and it's a a fairly exciting uh, time. But if you want to, if you are genuinely interested in process, the source material for this film was a novel that was 395 pages. Wow. The, screen, the screenplay had to come down, of course, to 120 pages. And in this process of decomposing and uh, processing and uh, compressing, what I discovered was uh, a difference that probably hasn't been discussed. I hope it hasn't because I don't want to bore your listeners. And that is there is a huge difference between uh, an historical espionage novel 
or a historical novel of any kind that is oriented to the people involved in it, the fictional characters, lives that weren't recorded necessarily by professional historians, but they're lives like yours and mine that were lived and important and relevant to the people. Uh, focusing on that will give you your story. There is, on the other hand, the need that uh, Agent Ken Zuckerman has said, and that is the people who read historical novels do want to know something about the time and the place, the historical personalities, and the problems and the conditions of that time. <clears throat> That's one of the, the sales points. When it comes to making a film, concentrating on the characters squeezes out a lot of the material from the book that was historical and exposition. And I've learned a tremendous deal from this. Sean had badgered me, I, I can honestly say it, said, let's get a companion novel out there about the time when the screenplay emerges that is a companion book and is as compressed and fast-moving as the screenplay is. And I said, oh, okay, but I'm going to have to do a lot uh, of, of, uh, of hatchet work. It's worked out. It has worked out marvelously, Yvonne. I have been able to give these characters a life and dimension of their own that transcends the historical characters with whom they interact. And uh, as I said, it's been a terrific pro process. So if you ask, what is the novel, the first form, the longer one, or the second form, I will say, the second form, form is far better if you want to read about people whose lives you can live through in their skins what I call immersion fiction. And immersion fiction, readers are not just reading. They are living through the characters in their steps one by one. You yourself, I think, probably have experienced this. Other people I've talked to have experienced this, where they find themselves associating more strongly with one character or another. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of this is the book then becomes the experience of the reader, and you have given those readers, as diverse as they are, permission to adopt this story, to insinuate themselves on their own terms, with their own imagination, in a way where you or me, as authors, are not telling them how to read the book. We're providing them an opportunity, opening some doors and saying, Okay, uh, enjoy it. It's yours from now on, and that's the way I like to write. And and you said something that that struck a chord with me, David, because people don't understand that they have that ability to read and comprehend the book the way they choose to, not the way we wrote it or the way we felt when we wrote it. And people get this preconceived idea that they have to have a certain opinion about a book, and if it differs from our opinion, then it's the wrong opinion. And that's not true. No, it's not It's not true at all, Yvonne. Uh, uh, I would say my, my friend and fellow writer Peter Abresh had called me after one of my books came out, an American Rest on Sharpshooter, and he said, all right, You've got your name on this, but who really wrote this book? And <laughs> in, in that it was so different from the voices and the approach and the language even that I'd used before. And I said to Peter, um, the book wrote itself. I was just there to take down the words. And that's the way the book the book happened. I went into a deep period of investigation of the time and place, call it research. I started reading a lot about a time I'd never lived in, in the American West. I projected into the future, 
now uh, in a Montana time that was dying. And I came up with a set of characters who insisted on living their lives on their terms uh, in the place and the situation that I'd imagined and or created. It was, it was a transforming process. And it's one where I would recommend people, if you're thinking about characters, don't write them or imagine to create them. Sit around and listen. Listen for their voices. A lot of people have never gotten to the point, and many, many good writers say, this is transforming because I, I heard the character. I got to a point where, I, in my preconception, I wanted the character to do that. But in the maturity of him or her, they had, they had asked the question, uh, who, who, wait a minute, who's in charge, you or me? Can I give you an example? Sure. You've heard the expression, or maybe even used it, don't put words into my mouth. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the process of writing dialogue at each line with each character, that character begs to be able to speak their responses or act on their impulses in a way that is theirs and not yours. And this awareness, people, if you get to this point, people will say, of course, you're crazy. That people that this doesn't happen. I would say if you're at it long enough, and you understand that there are perspectives beyond yours, then inevitably you'll have to open up and let your fictional people be as different and uh, contrary and mercurial as the people you run into in your own life, at least. And, and what is so interesting, David, is when we were children and we would say we have imaginary friends, people thought that we had two heads. Our imaginary friends are very real to us. When I was writing A Voice from the Grave, I wanted to write it one way. I was yeah. determined I was going to write it one way. And I could not write the book because the voices said, watch this, woman. You're not, you can't write it the way we're speaking, so you're not writing it at all. When I quit listening to myself and let the characters, as you say, give the dialogue, the book flowed. Yes, and, and I think it's that way. If you wanted to look at our roles, it is less as creators than as catalysts. The True. Sto- the story is out there. It will need us to, to help it happen. But the role we play is very much like a catalyst in a chemical reaction. In vanishingly small amounts, it significantly transforms the reaction and accelerates the pace, the heat, and the productivity of those chemicals. If you look at the reaction mix after it's finished, you've got the product you want, Somewhere down at the bottom of the mix, there is a tiny little bit of catalyst. If you look very hard, you may be able to pick it up and isolate it. But it is a vanishingly small thing, but essential to the rendering of the reaction, just as the author is essential to to do that way. What one doesn't want to say, at least I don't want to, to say that, I can't succeed on these terms, is when you're overwhelming it. And I think, Yvonne, you had just described something about wanting, having to do it your way, trying to force the story. Mm-hmm. I sense not only you would feel that, but a reader of a story that you made to move in that direction, force fit, would also feel this discomfort that the, that the characters weren't quite living the way they should in their own skins and by their own wills. And I have read books that were written that way where you felt you were right there to the edge of the precipice, but just as you got there, there was something missing and you could not put your finger on it. And sometimes the the authors that put out a book every three months because they're under contract – 
you get that that hole in their their story because their characters stop being three dimensional. They stop talking and carrying on a dialogue, and it seems plastic. Yeah, it, it does. There's an artificiality in there, and it's disappointing. And Yvonne, when you talked about the value of the time, and that's where we're all equal, everyone. We're given this bank of time. It is a precious thing to all of us, and that's the reason why I wanted to express my appreciation for the value of your time, because a couple of other other times someone hasn't. And I, as I said, I regret that. But I am so glad that you are here to exchange views as an author. I wanted to ask you a question. Yes. And the question is, have you ever encountered one of your readers who has come to you and they have given you a reaction to one of your books that you hadn't believed that you had planned into it, that you had written it, it worked fine, but there was a dimension or a spin to it that you hadn't put in, that they saw? As a matter of fact, I have. And the the biggest impact that a fan had on me was the first true crime that I ever wrote. When she met me, she she was crying. And I thought, oh, my God, what have I done to this woman? And she said, no, you don't understand. My mother saw the killer take the, some bodies into the Pain Prairie Preserve. My mother could not get anybody to believe her and was an alcoholic after that. She said, Yvonne, you've liberated me. Mm-hmm. That's, 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 a, that's a nice reaction, and it's, it's a good illustration of that. I have written fiction where um, a reader's take on that, he said, did you ever know this nuance, this property of this character that you would put in there? I said, I, I, I'm sorry, I haven't put that. I'm not, not that I know if I put that in there. And then the thing that was beautiful about this one reader is that he had the sensitivity to say, um, no, I'm not going to, I don't want to argue. Let's go back and take a look at a couple of lines that I had put in there. And once he connected these lines, I could see that he had been able to create this aspect of the character where I had put the words down without the intention of their connecting that way. And yet he could make a case that they did. It made the book richer for him in a way where I was impoverished before he made me see where his riches, riches were buried. And it, 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 was, it was a beautiful experience because it led me to believe that I shouldn't doubt that I'm writing a good story. I should simply let the story exist on terms which aren't forced. If I don't understand what's going on, but it seems to flow, let it flow. You can always come back and edit later. Absolutely. And and the thing, David, that, that I find interesting is um, when people read with an open mind, this thing happens that you just talked about because their their mind is totally emptied of everything but, but getting into the book and learning what they can glean from the book. And to be able to connect that says something about you as, as a not only a prolific writer, but allowing your characters to say, hey, I'm putting these little Easter eggs in here, and you don't even know it. <laughs> I don't even really know it either. Uh, yeah. I love it. Yeah, it, 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 it is it, it is terrific, and this experience of going on is encouraging, too. One of the things that I feel is, is useful about a show like this, it's, it's certainly inspiring, encouraging, but pragmatically useful, is that individuals who are struggling with their writing ought to know that it's not that they're having difficulties that anyone else hasn't had. It's that, that they will have to create something, I believe, early on, imperfect. Yes. 
that allows them to develop the basic skills. It's a little bit like a tennis game. Unless you have your overhand and your ground strokes down, you're not going to be very good at that, and that takes practice. And with that, we are going to take a quick break, David. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Off the Chain. I'm your host, Yvonne Mason, with one of the most fascinating gentlemen I've ever had the honor of having on my show, author David Hoof. And if you've been listening, you can see why this man is such a, a magnanimous human being and filled with sage wisdom. And I never cease to learn things from him. And we will be right back to continue this wonderful conversation. Horses See Ghosts, a new poetry book by Gannat Wise. It's been called Poetry for the Rest of Us. Amazon. Do you have cougars on your porch swing? Are horses your new best friend? Do your nicest shoes get buried knee-deep in snow as your toes turn blue? Are you bothered by wolves at your woodpile? No, not that kind of wolf. Join wildlife artist and author Nancy Quinn and her family as they discover an exciting new life in Go West, Young Woman, a true Montana adventure, available online and in bookstores, or visit quinnwildlifeart.com for a personalized signed copy. Critics agree, it's a hoot. A struggling city, its beloved baseball team, an antique camera, and photos from that camera that bear an image from the pit of hell, an entity only a select few can see. Journalism professor Buddy Cullen is determined to track this demon down. But who is the hunter and who is the prey? And who will be the next target of mankind's mortal foe? Mortal Foe, available at Amazon.com. Hi, this is Winona and Jade inviting you to join us and our wonderful guests on the And I Thought Women's Cave podcast on Blog Talk Radio to learn more about our books, the And I Thought series, and the Misfit Guides. They're available on Amazon.com and BarnesandNobles.com. Or just to see what your ladies are up to, you can find all of that out on www.andwethought.com. So peace and love from Winona and Jade <laughs> and our books. <laughs> You're so silly. You silly. Remember Did you write that? That's funny. <laughs> Remember to visit us at andwethought.com. The year, 1888. The place, London's East End. Dead and mutilated bodies are popping up all over, from Stamford to Whitechapel. Jack the Ripper is leaving his mark and the city's on edge. Yvonne Mason is back with a tale of murder and millinery. The Rhodes Hat Factory is booming while the body count rises. Why now? How are these hats connected? Has the hatter gone mad? Mad Hatter from Yvonne Mason. Available now on Amazon.com. And we are back. This is Off the Chain. I'm your host, Yvonne Mason, with my guest, the wonderful author, David Hoof. And David, before the break, we were talking about when when people decide they want to, to do creative writing and they want to write, that they have to understand that they are going to fall down and, and stumble and, and make mistakes and and maybe write something that they're not really proud of. But that's okay because you've you you stated something that I made a note of and it's called creative writing as a responsibility. Explain that to our audience because that is such a profound statement. Oh. Creating, creative writing as a responsibility is a, a, a two-way responsibility. The first is a responsibility to yourself to get the most out of uh, whatever talents one has and to develop that uh, as well as one can with the awareness, Yvonne, that if you're writing within a genre, 
that genre is going to impose certain limitations, like the, the boundaries on a sports playing field. There are going to be rules. There are going to be objectives. There are going to be ways of dressing and uh, referees. So if one writes something in a horror genre, and I have, um, then one has to observe a certain series of rules, relationships, objectives, in order to satisfy the responsibilities you have to the readers. If you're doing another genre, uh, a historical espionage, one has to have an entirely different set of responsibilities to that. Um, and as far as a responsibility to yourself, there are two aspects that are important. It's not just for me. It's for anyone who tries. And that is the God-given right to sit down and to do what Alice Monroe, the Nobel Prize winner, wonderful Canadian short story writer, had said the first time she was working with her husband. She was picking away like writers of that with an Olivetti, simple typewriter. And she was pecking away uh, on this, and suddenly as her husband walked by behind him, a very supportive guy, she burst into tears and she said, I'm trying to be a writer. He simply put his hand on her shoulder and said, you are a writer. In other words, by, saying, by staying disciplined, by generating the text, by making the effort to stay with it, she was being a writer. She, in her own mind, had probably defined being a writer as being a bestseller or somebody who supported one another. Whereas her husband said, if you're doing this craft and you're putting everything that you can into it, then that's good. And I would say that about anyone at any level, perhaps one of the cruelest things that a writer or even a reader can say to an individual is, this is terrible, you shouldn't be writing. If writing is a source of psychological stability, and very often it can be, no one should come up and say, you shouldn't be writing. The thing that they should be saying is, I shouldn't be reading what you're writing, and that's fine. But it's different from prohibiting trying to say, you can't do this or you can't do it right. Thank you for that. You have no idea how important that statement, well, yeah, you do, how important that statement is because I have seen so I was one of those people years and years ago, and I was told, you can't write. So why bother? And I was told this by a teacher in school. Hurtful thing. Terribly hurtful. And, well, it impeded me for years. Mm-hmm. And, and to... Yeah. Go ahead, Devon. To hear someone of your stature and and your intellect and I mean this very sincerely David that is so profound and so important ladies and gentlemen pay attention to what David's saying because when somebody makes a statement that you can't write they're really saying I'm not good enough to read your work in in defense of some of the the critics, there there are perspectives by which one can out of that after a number of years and see why it was said, by whom it was said, and why it might just apply then, making peace with it. There was a professor in college I had by him, Douglas Abercrombie, who was one who said, whatever you do, never try to make a living as a novelist. Um, And uh, I think there are two aspects of that. Number one, uh, I didn't know at the time, that he had been struggling on his own to get one of his books published. And he was of mind, if, if I can't do it, then you certainly must not be able to do it, which doesn't hold at all. And you'll yeah. find many times uh, professors of English in college 
are so caught up in emulation. They'll do a Hemingway or they'll do a Faulkner. They don't really have a voice of their, their own. And what they what the publishers will see is oh here's an, another one another struggle for Hemingway another stru- struggle for Faulkner, um, and that's not what they want. They don't want emulation. They want originality in that. On the other hand, I can accept at that point in my writing that I wasn't as well developed as I eventually would be. Nonetheless, for some people who are are, are rather sensitive. This can be a a damaging, uh, an inhibiting, uh, even a paralytic thing for somebody to say. And I would say they don't they don't have the right. Everyone who is expressing an opinion has a right to that. And if the the wise person, the kind person, would say something like this, this allows you to be honest as well as as supportive, I think, as one can be. He said, if you like what you're doing, you really ought to keep with it. The person has Amen. not been dishonest. They have not been dishonest. They have not been cruel. And they've said exactly what needs to be said. Um, and, and they've given encouragement with the hope that that person will improve their craft with time, yes. because David, we all grow, we all mature, or we should, and our yes. our way of thinking, our attitude about things, and our skills usually improve with age because we have life's lessons behind us. Indeed, uh, if you look at somebody who started out being a genius himself, so he had an advantage uh, in not in writing but uh, in art. Uh, Pablo Picasso, he had three periods of expression in his life uh, was one uh, better than another i think they're sim- uh, they're significantly enough different that the idea of comparison of one school to the to the other doesn't exist it's not a meaningful uh, a meaningful uh, way of measuring the things but he saw limitations on with what he was doing earlier and he said i've now gotten a new vision I have believe that the difficulties that some of the young writers or new writers have is that they get stuck in some kind mm-hmm. of period like one of Picasso's that doesn't quite fulfill, it doesn't match their capabilities, it doesn't quite fulfill the emotional satisfaction they have to, they need to have, and what they need to do is to break away from that and start doing something a little bit different, and maybe they think it's a little bit crazy, but it's liberating. And the one thing they need is liberation to get away from whatever it is uh, that's keeping them from moving uh, forward. Oh, I wish I'd have had you when I was in school. Uh, All the girls say that. (laughs) I I really think I would have been so more well-rounded and I would have been, I might have started this journey sooner because for years and years and years, I didn't write at all mm-hmm. yeah. because I, I became ashamed of what I put on paper. It was never good enough. And then one day it dawned on me, Yvonne, it really doesn't matter. You're enough. What you write is good enough. Yeah, I think the other thing is is the privacy of your your own form of assessment. Uh, we can be tough in our, of ourselves, sometimes too tough. Uh, if somebody, someone's initial reaction themselves is harsher than the people they're working with, the supporters, they may say something like, oh, you're my mother, uh, you're supposed to like my writing, or, oh, you're my friend, so you would never tell me that something I did was good. And that eliminates the possibility that those two people honestly think that you've got something to do. I know parents who, if if an individual is tone deaf, as I happen to be, this is, is one. They're not going to get me a musical instrument because it really wouldn't do me any good. They're not punishing me. They're not criticizing me. They're helping me for, find an expressive form of artistic abilities that's more suitable to what my capabilities are. That's fair. 
without making you feel stupid and unworthy. Right, right. It, it is, and and there they were astute enough that there are things that are done, Yvonne, and there are ways of doing things that are done, and they sometimes can be a little bit duplicitous. But kids, as they grow up, uh, learn to accept this. If your father says, "Well, we'll see if you're interested in this uh, next year," and if so, we'll talk to the band teacher and see what instrument you might want to try. And in that form, the delaying, if someone, and kids often do, has another interest, another distraction, they'll take themselves away from that on their own initiative. And then they and start that journey, even with the detours and the bumps in the road. Yeah, yeah. Like they it, will it, find it, their uh, who is who is the lady? I think Helen Santimore. Uh, she's an 87-year-old lady in a nursing home, and you probably remember this. Who wrote a book called "And the Ladies of the Club"? Uh, it was her first published novel. It was a book of the month selection and a runaway bestseller. She had stuck with this thing uh, because it was the story she loved and one she wanted to write and the one that she was going to discipline, uh, almost like topiary, until everything was as crisp, expressive, and reflective of the story she wanted as she could. And the idea wasn't to get rich or famous, although by the time she was 87, she was rich and famous. This was never her expectation. Uh, the idea was you have to fall in love with the story, to fall in love with the story, or to be compelled by the story, you have to have some form of loyalty to the characters. It's not a matter of loving them all. Some of them might not be lovable, but it's a loyalty to stick with them as long as they stick with the story. Generally in film, you'll see this is a simple and a little bit maybe too formulaic, but there are people who start out wanting to get the same goal. And I call them triads. And this is usually in men's movies where they're trying to win a prize or a girl or something at the end. And there will be three sorts of characters. The one will be the one that goes uh, tremendously quickly and without much skill. Lots of urgency, but not much finesse. They try so hard but they find out that it's harder than they imagine, and they quit. There is another kind who sets themselves to the task and works hard, and at least tries to get where they will, and gets to the final of the one of the two people that the girl is considering. And there is the final person who looks at the girl not as a prize or not as a trophy, but as a person with whom to form a relationship. And because he has exhibited what she wants out of the possible union, he is selected. He didn't win anything. He simply presented himself in a way that was most appealing to the girl. And this triad of those who try too hard is a little bit like the birds I see on the back porch uh, here sometimes. If there's some cat food out on the back porch, we have a number of birds that love cat food. Go figure. (laughs) There is a a kind of bird that is the first in. Rushes in, gets there before that, and he is always too risky. In taking these risks, I have actually seen birds caught by cats. They're too eager to get there, and the cat hasn't finished his food. There is another form of bird that comes in and waits until some of the food has been eaten to make sure the cat isn't interested, gets in there, and gets through enough to get through the day. They get fed. There is a third kind of bird that is so risk-averse that they're afraid of the shadows. They'll never go down and try to get a speck of cat food and they'll often perish, they'll not get enough food. 
And I look at these and I say, there are people like that out there. Yes. And and I don't, I don't again this may sound a little nuts but I don't know that we are ever poorly served by looking at creatures and watch what they do and wonder if we don't know people who do the same sorts of things. Oh, I do, and I know you do. And and those that are not risk takers of of some sort. They they live their life with regret, and then at the end of the day, they go, I shoulda, woulda, coulda, and it's too late. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and it, and it's funny about the, the ability to write an everybody wins story and to do it unsentimentally. Uh, if they're, for instance, doing something as sim- simple as bowling, and there's a girl who doesn't want to go bowling because she's a little awkward and can't throw uh, the ball right and uh, uh, gets gets a world of gutter balls and tries to throw two-handed through through her legs and everybody is making fun of her and doesn't want her to come back again but there's somebody a, a boy who's been through this been through the same thing that he has and learned step by step to ignore the discouragement of other people and to take the game your own way mm-hmm. to play the game because you want to do it and to put the earplugs in and just come back. If there's something you don't do right, if you can't get the spin in the ball right to have a strike, you come back and you practice and you practice and you practice. It's like my mother used to say, Yvonne, you do the mundane things every day and it teaches you discipline. That's the thing, and uh, I had a, a, an uncle uh, uh, whose who's cousin of mine was also a writer, a good writer, in fact, uh, but he was somewhat undisciplined, uh, a brilliant guy, uh, and, and finished a novel published by Random House, but then went off and did other things, and Bernie had said uh, to me, he said, he says, you're going you're gonna to succeed because you treat it like a business. Now, Bernie was a salesman. He was a businessman, meaning that you take yourself to your typewriter, and this is like Flannery O'Connor, who had a rule. She had lupus. It was an impediment. It was never easy for her to write. She said, I don't know that I'll write something worthy, but I'll make myself sit down in front of the typewriter, put a piece of bond in the platen, scroll it in, and then sit there and watch for a half an hour. And she had a timer. She said, I will not leave that position. I can enter in words if I want to. I can write a story or not. But I must sit there where this can happen potentially happened every day for half an hour and she eventually discovered although she was stubborn and said this thing this is not going to happen uh this can't be a productive half an hour discovered that wasting time and doing nothing was more frustrating than just putting down a sentence or two or three or four mm-hmm. and this is the way she developed working like habits where although we don't think of creative writing necessarily as something that's done on a production schedule, if you don't turn up every day at some time, you're not going to put out the text. You're not going to crank out the story of a text. And whether or not, our hours up. Wait, folks, about the new book uh, say again, Yvonne. It didn't, didn't come through with then. I said we are almost, our hour is almost up. So oh, quickly, well, <laughs> tell the folks about Babes and Bastards real quick. Well, Babes and Bastards is the ultimate satire. In fact, it, it was it was in production many, many years as a thought exercise before the business with Harvey Weinstein came, came along. So there's a line relating to Harvey Weinstein as Hollywood eventually knew him to be, uh, which comes out of this and when, when I published this book about a woman uh, who is 
created by an artificial intelligence program, and she just pops into the life of somebody and takes over this life in a woman's way, on a woman's terms, in a way where the man who created her is satisfied but not necessarily with her. She's smarter about his needs than he is. It's a wonderful book about how savvy women are and how well she plays the situation that she's been given. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it, it is, it. yeah, it is a lark. Uh, again, we can. You know my email. Uh, I know yours. Uh, I can get your mailing address and get one off to you. Glad to do that, Yvonne. I can autograph it or send it off if you think my signature is valueless. We can do it any way you want. Oh, you're a sweetheart. You're an absolute doll, David. Tell the folks where you can be found so they can go get your books. He, ladies and gentlemen, he's got a palatra of books. Uh, yeah, well, it, uh, in, in, in Amazon.com, I think at this point is probably the best source, although you would find the... <laughs> You can find them offered as websites in Australia and Russia and other places as well. It's a, it's a real lark to find out who likes what about what that we do true. in America. Amazon.com is, is certainly a good source. I must say that James Carlson, whom you know, is a designer and does my cover work. He's a phenomenal guy. He's looking for young, talented writers, and Carlson Graphics is where he can be found. Uh, I promised that I'd put in a plug plug for him. Jeez, I would buy these books just for the cover art. I, they're it's that good. The cover art, the cover yeah. art is magnificent. Let me ask you something. Will you come ahead? Will you come back and, and visit us? Uh, it's it's all a matter of demand, uh, Yvonne. I'd I'd love to do that. Um, I am probably in and about well, beginning in in Thanksgiving and running through. You're if you're booked up till January. Uh, if we go into next year, it might be an intriguing time for us to get together because about that time. Uh, the screenplay should be out there and Gee. circulating in the students, in the studios. And the companion novel should be ready by March, actually available by March of Perfect. 2019. Perfect. Perfect. So I'm going to hold you to it. Ladies okay. and gentlemen, we have reached the end of our hour, believe it or not. And, you know, there's this couple of things that I said. David, thank you so, so much for, for coming on the show. I just, I don't know where the hour goes. Thank but, you, Yvonne, so much, and we'll speak. Yeah, okay. Hold on, Enjoy. David. Don't hang up. Okay. And people will forget your name. They will forget what you look like, but they will never, ever forget how you make them feel. And if you aspire to greatness, ladies and gentlemen, do not ask permission because we are all great. We are all unique. Join us tomorrow night when we have another guest on here at Off the Chain at 8 o'clock Eastern Daylight Time. And, David, I apologize for interrupting you in the middle of your sentence, but I needed to get that out. Please continue. Oh, I think we're, we're wherever you want time-wise, uh, Yvonne, and I'm fine with that. Uh, I am looking forward to this conversion process. Uh, there is there, there is this wonderful turbulence. It's like uh, when it comes to collaborating with an individual on a script, the versions move so quickly, uh, and uh, there are a number of programs like Final Draft where you can actually trade lines electronically online as mm -hmm. the document is being created. Um, it's it's terrific. It's exciting, and uh, I'm growing because my mind is open to another creative mind. Uh, we do not, Sean and I, ever fight. What we do is ask questions of the needs of the scenes and the characters, and demand that they be true to herself themselves. We have a character who is. Uh, an 81-year-old veteran of World War One uh, who's Hold dying up, of stomach. 
Yeah. David, hold that thought if you will just a minute. They're fixing to cut us off on the live show, so hold on. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Off the Chain. I'm your host, Yvonne Mason, with my guest, David Hoof, and we are going to say good night. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, you will have to hear it in the archive part of the show. So continue. You have a, a We're off the air, but all this is going to be heard in the archive part of the show. So continue the story, because now you've got me fascinated. Well, the, uh, the the beauty of this is, uh, Yvonne, what we've done is develop a technique that's called a dialogue box. And it is as simple as putting a slot in a 5 by 8 index card, simply cutting out or using a Zacto knife to take a line box about the shape of a line of dialogue in a novel or in a screenplay form. And we then vet the screenplay by color coding each one of the characters. Um, a, a, woman, uh, a woman named Yvonne may have a, a scarlet color. Every one of her lines in the screenplay is marked with scarlet. And we go by, when we go, we, we think we finished it, we go back over the whole screenplay paying attention only those red highlighted lines asking the question is this something this character would see now what we put down there has nothing to do with how we want to shape the story it has everything to do with how the character wants to protect their integrity uh, their self pursue their goals avoid danger and protect their being we let the characters run the stories and make their decisions because that's the way life is. Wow. It's a wonderful little trick that allows us to escape the temptation of getting to, into our own head and using our own, the limits of our own vocabulary. So we all have a core vocabulary of words, an extended vocabulary of words. We all have a pace and cadence to the way we speak. Uh, we all have a, a little, what would you call them, nuances. Some people, and I don't know if you've ever known anybody, like, will break off in the middle of a sentence because the thought they're chasing in their head gets away with them, and they stop speaking because they can't talk as fast as they can think. They just talk I do that and they're... frequently. <laughs> It's a mannerism that characterizes individuals. If you deny your character this individual trait, then you're denying them their individuality. So we very carefully vet these to make sure that the characters are looking after themselves on their own terms in the mix that they encounter. Uh, we have any number of gadgets and devices with, that we put together for this purpose. And uh, it, it just it's a fascinating process of providing where the objective is to provide the needs of the story, causality, continuity, uh, conflict, in a building way so that everything that's needed gets in there at the end. Um, is it demanding? At this point, no, because we've broken it down into a system. We never try to do everything at once. If we're looking at dialogue, we look only at the dialogue of the characters one at a time according to their color coding and seeing if what they're saying makes sense with the direction they want to take in the end. And... Uh, Oh, um, I can't wait to explore this further when you get in March when it becomes a real baby and you can start to let it go. David, this will be so much fun to discuss. Yeah, well, I, you... I think, yeah, I think, I think Yvonne, you, you would because uh, I can, in fact, if I get a uh, address for you, can, we can exchange by that. I'll send along the core of a four presentation course on dialogue. I'll be wrapping up on the 15th of September, so you can have a look-see at that if you'd like. Oh, you're a doll. You're yeah, marvelous. 
Glad to oh, what an honor. Thank you, David. Uh, you're, you're, of course, you're more than welcome. And uh, have a great weekend. Enjoy. And thank you for all of the people to whom you bring uh, good programs like this. May, may you get uh, many agreeable guests and zero no-shows from now on. I'd love that for you. <laughs> thank you. Well, and, and may you always find that which you embrace so well. And I wish you so much luck with this screenplay. I can't wait to see it on film. Yeah, well, I, I think that, uh, that that you will, in fact, uh, like it. Um, the, the the reason, Ivana, I'll tell you right now, is that we have at the center of this, this is uh, Germany, um, pre-Nazi Germany, 1931. We have, as you may know, a number of powerful women against the Nazi part. The Nazis wanted the women to stay at home, have babies, uh, um, uh, bring them in their, their, their dinners, and basically disappear as people. Uh, Lenny Riefenstahl is one of the women. Uh, Marlene Dietrich is another one of, of the women of those age, powerful mm-hmm. women. Uh, who emerged and expressed themselves, the importance being not just you know who they are, but these were people who clearly were swimming against the fall of the river. And they made it. And we have such a character in this book. And in fact, because of the ineptitude and, and pride and reckless danger, in some case, of some of her espionage colleagues, She's forced to take over the story on her own terms. This requires her remaining apparently feminine, but acting in ways where she'll be sweet in one way, agree with that, and then go ahead and do what she wants to do. And the beauty is it works better than the men would have done because they were so stubborn about going their own way that they would have walked into a trap. It's a wonderful story because the woman starts out unobtrusive and she then walks in and at a certain point, this is one of these discoveries, I gave you that eureka moment. I said, wait a minute. She's going to do what she can do just like any other person. I let her run with it and boy, is this, this is, we hope to get the Israeli lady who is starring in the Wonder Woman films to Ooh. play, uh, yeah, to play Nadine in this because she'd be a tr- she has the kind of range and the kind of energy that would would bring a lot to it. I can't wait. Yeah. I cannot wait. Yeah. So with well, that, my friend, I am going to say have a great weekend. Thank you for weekend. the hour. Uh, thank thank you for having me on, Yvonne. We'll be back. All right, darling. Talk to you all later. Right, all right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.